You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperl. Aggressive Fed tightening, growing federal deficits, and stubborn inflation have all contributed to higher Treasury yields this year, leading to recurring headlines of how yields have reached levels not seen in more than 15 years. After four decades of declining yields before the pandemic, investors wonder if these increases are a temporary blip or the beginning of a new normal. In today's episode, we talk with Terry Belton, former head of global portfolio strategy for the chief investment office at J.P. Morgan, about what caused the 40-year bond bull market, whether he thinks the environment has changed, and how to think about fixed income investment moving forward. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Terry Belton, former head of global portfolio strategy for the chief investment office at J.P. Morgan. But first, a quick market update. War has broken out in Israel after Hamas militants in Gaza broke through Israeli security measures to inflict brutal casualties, take hostages, and incite a retaliatory response from Israel. For financial markets, the war presents upside risks to inflation if oil-producing countries decide to impose any embargoes that will restrict the global energy supply. At the same time, we've seen some flight-to-safety trades that have caused a rally in the bond market whenever the conflict escalates. For now, the Fed is taking the geopolitical risk into account as one more variable to consider with its monetary policy decisions. The biggest economic reports the last two weeks were the September CPI and September retail sales, both showing worrisome signs of an overheating economy. Treasury yields jumped across the curve after both reports, setting new cycle highs this week and reversing an initial bond market rally after the violence in Israel began. Fed officials have mostly stuck to their usual script the last couple weeks, with some FOMC participants explicitly favoring no more rate hikes while most acknowledge some possibility for another hike in the future. There's been more of an emphasis lately on the implications from higher long-term yields, but the Fed will have to wait to see the economic impact since they often operate with a lag. The U.S. House of Representatives is still without a speaker after Congressman Steve Scalise withdrew his nomination after failing to get enough votes on the House floor. Jim Jordan became the latest Republican to throw his hat into the ring, but has so far fallen short on the first two ballots. Some are pushing for Speaker pro temp Patrick McHenry to assume more responsibilities so that the House can go about its business. Without another continuing resolution passed in the House, the federal government will shut down November 18th. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our interview with Terry Belton. Our guest today is Terry Belton, a former managing director at J.P. Morgan Chase, where he served as head of global portfolio strategy for the chief investment office. He was also formerly the head of global fixed income research at J.P. Morgan, an economist at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. Terry, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Well, great to uh, great to be here. Our topic today is the potential end of the 40 year bond bull market. What caused yields to go down for the four decades before the pandemic? and where they are heading in the future. I I think if you look at any chart of interest rates between 1980 and 2020, whether it's the Fed funds rate or treasury yields across the curve, there's an unambiguous downward trend. And this persisted through business cycles, huge changes in geopolitics, different presidential administrations. So Terry, what were the primary drivers causing interest rates to go down over this time period? Yeah, it was quite a a long run and quite a um, a big movement 
over a long period of time downward in, in bond yields. And, and really several pieces to it, Will. I mean, the first and sort of the biggest component clearly was inflation. The Fed finally uh, got its arms around inflation. In the 1970s, uh, we had a you know, very high levels to start the decade, but inflation continued to move higher. It averaged 7% nearly during the 1970s, end of the decade, up near 10%. And that you know, led the Federal Reserve under Paul Volcker to embark on historically aggressive uh, level of tightening, pushing short-term rates above 20%. And they finally uh, got through a, a very serious recession, got inflation to come back down towards target. And by the mid-1980s, it was back to, to 2% or so. So obviously, uh, which and two percent where kind of plus or minus it, it tended to to remain for a long period of time, and then and obviously that's sort of the biggest driver of lower uh, nominal uh, yields, just getting you know lower levels of inflation and getting inflation expectations uh, down to expect that it'll remain there. But secondly, and and really importantly, is on top of what was going on with nominal yields. Um, the, the other driver was really we had declining real rates that were really pushed lower by a decline in, in risk premium, you know, in the yield curve. Financial economists, when they look at term rates, you know, those rates really reflect two different things. One is what's the expected path of short-term rates over time that's driven by Fed policy. But on top of that, what risk premium, positive or negative, do investors need to earn to hold higher duration assets? And, and you know that historically had been a very large positive number. Risk premium, uh, long-term rates tended to trade significantly above where you know the path of short-term rates happened to go and, and where they were expected to go. Positive um, risk premium. And during, you know, beginning in the 1990s, that, you know, began a very steady decline, compressing yields out the curve. And there were a couple of factors behind it. The first is it's a natural byproduct of low and stable inflation, because that environment where you take inflation largely to the sidelines in terms of the determining of yield changes, rates move primarily on changing growth expectations, and then that environment, bond prices become very negatively correlated with stocks. You know, you get a, a growth shock to the downside, stocks sell off, but bond markets rally. The Fed, the Fed can come in and ease and offset that. And so we had a, a period of very uh, stable kind of negative correlation between stocks and bonds. That makes bonds a good hedge for, you know, risky assets and, and, and helps diversify um, broad investment portfolios. That makes them attractive. And so even if the risk premium on, on you're getting paid for earning, for taking the risk of longer duration, if that risk premium is small, it's okay to buy that if it's diversifying you know, other assets you have in the portfolio. So that was clearly a big driver. Um, the second, of course, is the kind of well-advertised global savings club, um, partly driven by you know, demographics, 
Um, you had the baby boomers entering their peak earning years, and they were saving assets for retirement. Uh, on top of that, you know, globalization produced very large accumulation of uh, produced uh, trade surpluses for the emerging markets for China um, and the other emerging market economies that produced very large increases in their foreign exchange reserves, which were invested in dollars. They were major buyers of U.S. fixed income assets, including, of course, U.S. treasuries. That compressed uh, risk premium. And then, you know, finally, following uh, the great financial crisis in 2009, uh, we had massive central bank buying around the globe of, of fixed income assets. We had quantitative easing further compressing, you know, those uh, risk premiums. So, you know, lower inflation, lower nominal rates, but the, the global savings glut, QE and bond stock correlations really lowered risk premium and real rates to historically, you know, low levels to really negative levels. I think then to understand uh, whether the current rise in yields we've seen is a temporary blip or maybe the start of a new normal is, is to go through those components and think about uh, whether anything has changed during the pandemic. So I want to start with that low and stable inflation and the kind of decline in the risk premium. So the way that I understand uh, your description of that is that over time, over those 40 years, there was some credibility that the Fed was uh, going to um, have the the willingness and ability to get inflation down to 2%. And um, a part of that meant also that there was less uncertainty about the future path of inflation. Um, so, you know, let's say right after the financial crisis, uh, the Fed seemed to uh, be pretty committed to keeping rates low, and there was not too much uh, uncertainty about the path of inflation. Now, when you look at those dynamics in, let's say, this next chapter of the bond market, uh, the next cycle, whatever you want to call it. Do you think there has been a change there? Has the Fed lost any credibility in being able to get inflation down to 2%? Um, or do you think this will still remain uh, in the way that, that they kind of worked towards in the, the 40 years before the pandemic? Uh, let me separate sort of my answer, kind of the inflation in its story and really the other factors I mentioned around term premium. On the inflation side, sure. I mean, obviously, inflation volatility and uncertainty is, has picked up. We uh, went through a, a period here following the, the pandemic and supply constraints and a lot of stimulus that produced excess demand that created you know, very high levels of inflation. And that inflation has been a bit sticky coming down. But on the other hand, I don't think that's a statement about Fed loss of credibility or that those elevated levels of inflation are sort of the new normal. I think we're on a clear path to get it back to target. It's clear the Fed is committed to do that. And when you look at a lot of the, the data that's been coming in around um, inflation, it's all moving in the, in the right direction. So it's sticky for now. And that's obviously the, the reason we have you know, relatively high nominal rates currently and high policy rates, you know, I would expect, you know, over the next couple of years that to be back, you know, at target. So that's not really a new normal, but it is obviously a, a driver, 
you know, right now and kind of for the medium term, the next uh, the next couple of years that should keep rates elevated. It's a different story on the other uh, drivers of, of the decline in bond yields uh, that we had, you know, seen over a long period of time, because there, I think there is a new normal. And in almost each one of those cases, uh, the underlying drivers pushing risk premium and real rates lower is kind of in reverse right now. Um, and I'll obviously we'll start with kind of working in sort of reverse order of the ones I mentioned. We'll start with quantitative easing in the central bank buying. You know, they're obviously shrinking their portfolios globally. Uh, so quantitative easing has become quantitative tightening. And that will put some additional spread between term rates and sort of expected future short-term rates. Secondly, demographics. The baby boomers have retired. They're drawing down their savings now. And so that's weakening, you know, one of the big domestic drivers of this global savings glut. And we have a movement towards deglobalization, foreign demand, foreign sponsorship of fixed income assets in the U.S. has gotten very weak. You know, from 2000 to 2015, you know, foreign exchange reserves, you know, grew fivefold, which is a massive increase, all supporting duration purchases, uh, fixed income purchases, a lot of them in, in dollars. And, and those reserves have been stagnant since. So really powerful force in that from the 90s through 2015 has really been reversed right now. And then finally, I talked about sort of the stock and bond correlations, you know, having the negative correlations, making fixed income sort of an attractive asset class from a diversification standpoint for portfolios that have equities and other risky assets. Well, that's clearly flipped right now. And, you know, the last month, really the last year has been, it's been very, very evident. We're in an environment now where, you know, rates are rising because inflation is sticky. Expectation is that the Fed's going to keep them higher for longer. Yeah, that's been a negative for stocks, but obviously a negative for bonds as well. So that feature of fixed income, you know, assets is no longer a, a positive. And so that's, at least for the time being, compelling risk premium to move higher. We've seen it move higher. There are financial economists have models to try to separate what part of the, say, a 10-year rate, 10-year term rate is reflecting expected sort of average of short-term rates over time versus risk premium. So those measures of term premium have been moving significantly higher in the last three months. They moved nearly 100 basis points off their lows, but they're still really depressed pre-global financial crisis averages. They're, they're near zero now. They average well above 100 basis points prior to, to 2010. So I think there's more to go on that front. A couple of those points I want to dig into a little bit more because I can see the, the future path um, not necessarily going, uh, continuing the way they did the four decades before the pandemic, but but kind of countervailing forces. So central bank buying, um, shifting from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening, I think that is definitely the case. Um, pretty unambiguous. I feel like that is going to continue for the foreseeable future. But when it comes to deglobalization, um, so... There, uh, the the kind of 
lack of foreign buying of treasuries. Um, that means that that yields are bound to go up. I, but I also want to introduce the idea that deglobalization um, is going to kind of cause a new uh, inflation regime. And actually, this is an example that will reinforce those higher yields uh, in this particular instance. But the two decades before the pandemic, China joined the World Trade Organization in uh, 2000 or 2001. And we were able, the U.S. was able to benefit from just persistent goods disinflation. And now what we've seen and in kind of a shift of the geopolitical order is more onshoring, more friendshoring. And if we don't kind of have the same benefit of importing cheap goods from China, does that mean that we could have a new normal for inflation that pushes up yields for the foreseeable future? Yeah, directionally, that's exactly right, Will. I mean, that deglobalization is certainly in, in the direction of pushing inflation higher. So are some of these other factors, to be clear, the demographics, the baby boomers retiring, you know, the labor force is shrinking with that. And this is one of the reasons why uh, inflation has been, been sticky you know, on the downside. So it's not like we're totally out of the woods on inflation. I just think that what we're seeing in the data right now, even before the economy has slowed, is inflation rates moving, you know, very much in, uh, in, in the right direction. And that's not just sort of the headline numbers, but, you know, we're seeing some of the, like some of the trim mean measures, like Dallas trim mean PC, it's 2.6% the last three months. So that's a lar- very large move downward. The dollar appreciation that we've seen is that's renewing downward pressure on import prices. We know rent, rents and, and uh, owner equivalent rents will you know, land what's happening in the housing market. So those are have a lot of tailwinds to continue to normalize. So inflation this year is going to, Fed's for, forecasting 3.7% year over year at the end of the year. I think we'll end up lower than that. And then in 2024, uh, I think we'll, we're going to be back in the in the low twos. Now that's not, and some of these other factors aren't pushing in the direction, but the impact of all of the tightening of financial conditions and the rate hikes haven't really even worked through yet. That's still kind of ahead of us. I should say, uh, well, I kind of the last you know really important factor that we can't you know leave out, but it's obviously very well you know advertised here on sort of why higher rates might be the new normal, and this is, again, is around more the risk premium side, is, of course, on the supply side. That is the massive uh, fiscal expansion we've had. There's a demand issue from some of the uh, factors I mentioned, weak foreign buying, um, the sort of end of the global savings gap, but there's a big supply issue as well. You know, U.S. deficits running nearly 8% of GDP, despite you know, unemployment below 4%. I mean, that's just irresponsible. And there's a global side to that story as well. And we're only seeing kind of the early signs of that, uh, that's those supply pressures. 2024, in terms of sort of duration supply, this year we issued a lot of bills to fund the deficit. Next year, uh, that won't be the case. It's going to be, you know, all in coupons. And so from a duration standpoint, next year is going to see a 30% increase 
in duration supply from Treasury, the highest since 2010. So, you know, that's a big, a big factor as well. I think that that Treasury supply uh, factor is, is pretty compelling, especially when we've seen these swelling deficits. But I want to tie it into the demographic forces that you mentioned. So the intuition behind, um, you know, more boomer retirements that increases inflation from a from a smaller labor force. Is there also uh, the potential for a kind of opposing pressure on yields um, from what you might call Japanification? or uh, in Europe, where birth rates aren't really keeping up with death rates. And we've seen pretty chronic deflation uh, in both of those those regions. Is there something about kind of aging population that will actually cause downward pressure on yields? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot of cross currents here. I think aging population, when they were saving, was clearly putting downward pressure, kind of shifting the INS curve in a way that you know, through in the 90s and early 2000s, that was clearly a driver. I think um, as they draw down those savings, which is the, the peer we're entering, um, I think uh, that, you know, will tend to shift the curve in the other direction. They're uh, obviously going to, to be a big drain on the federal budget, you know, going forward through Social Security. Um, and I think that you know, will put up the pressure on yields as well. So I think historically, you know, going back the last 20 years, they've been a contributor to disinflation. Uh, I think, you know, that dynamic is changing as they, you know, they age and work their way through retirement. So all of that being said, um, everything we just talked about um, for, for kind of the outlook of the future, what caused that decline in yields the 40 years before the pandemic? Do you get the sense that the higher bond yields we're seeing right now are the beginning of a new normal? Are we going to have just as steep of an upward increase in yields, kind of the mirror image of the, the 40 years before the pandemic? Or what do you see as the trajectory for kind of the next chapter of the bond market? No, I don't at all think these levels are kind of the beginning of the new normal. I mean, tactically, you know, the bond market, I think, is oversold here. Um, it's probably a, the right entry point to, to add uh, some, some duration. And, you know, part of that is that in the fourth quarter, I think we're headed for, a, you know, a, a slowdown, a pothole anyway, for, for the economy. We have a whole set of factors driving that. The resumption of student loan payments is going to, you know, subtract probably on the order of half a percentage point from GDP. Um, we have the, you know, UAW strike. We have, you know, the run-up in oil prices is, and, 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 and gasoline prices is going to be a drag on the consumer. And we've just spent the last four months with a really significant tightening of financial conditions, stocks down, rates up, credit spreads, you know, widening. Um, so that has yet to work its way through the, the economy. And, you know, finally, the savings rate is kind of uh, on the lower end of its, its range. The, a lot of the excess savings from the COVID stimulus is now depleted. So, you know, we, we're, we grew in the third quarter at over 3%. Uh, I think we'll be well under 1% in the fourth quarter. So tactically, I think we're going to see some, you know, retracement. It's been a very, very big move here over the last three months in bond yields. That big a move in such a short period of time, 
those, those tend to, to retrace. So that's kind of a tactical view here. And, and, I, and, I, and I do think because of that, uh, you know, we've seen probably uh, the last of the, the Fed rate hikes, you know, this, this cycle. So that's more of a kind of a cyclical short-term view. And then you want to kind of add to that some of the longer-term views, these structural dynamics that I referenced that wherever the kind of funds rate, you know, settles, we're going to have a steeper curve than uh, we've had the last 15 years and certainly even steeper than, uh, than we have, you know, now. And that's related to this risk premium story. If all of those structural forces are going to cause um, some sustained weakness in bonds, um, if nothing else, we're not going to see the, the same bond bull market that we had the four decades before the pandemic. Do you think there's any potential for systemic distress? And what I mean by this is picture all of the, the pension funds, um, all of the investors that were able to benefit from the capital appreciation on these assets that were, you know, essentially had no credit risk. Um, will they now be kind of uh, experiencing difficulty trying to figure out how to live in a world where bond yields are not going down for four decades? Yeah, I think it, it cuts both ways. For one thing, at least for the, the last 10 years or so, um, with real rates so significantly negative, like you know, 10-year real rates as low as negative 1%, the investment opportunities in fixed income were just terrible. Um, and yeah, equities were, had, had, you know, performed really well, you know, post-financial crisis and that, you know, bailed out a lot of, you know, investor types and pensions to some extent benefited from that. But in some ways that was just a big mismatch. Pensions have, you know, really long dated fixed income liabilities in many cases and, you know, they're the, the, the better matches to be buying fixed income. You know, their funding status really suffered even in a market where equities is doing well. The fact that bond yields were moving so much lower, you know, their liabilities went up a lot more. So that was not really the, the, a great environment for them. This, this sell-off here has really helped a lot of them on their funding status and it gives them an opportunity to better match their assets and, uh, and liabilities. But you have to say the investment environment for a lot of asset classes right now over the next three to five years is not an easy one. And the real rates, uh, the real returns and fixed income are actually attractive, but you know most other asset classes, public equities, private equities, they're expensive. So it's gonna be a challenging environment for sure. Given everything that you just said about the, the kind of upcoming environment, what do you think is the best way for fixed income investors to position with, let's say, the structural changes over the long term, but also uh, where you see the trajectory of Fed policy over the next six to 12 months? You know, as I sort of alluded to, I, I think these are actually attractive, you know, levels, you know, 10 year um, inflation protected bonds offering real yields at nearly two and a half percent. You know, it's as high as we've had in, you know, 15 years. I think, you know, some allocation to, to tips makes sense here because, you know, real yields are, are attractive uh, currently. I think in investors in 
fixed income want to have a steepener, you know, bias. Um, that's really what that, the more structural factors I talked about would imply, um, you know, the deglobalization, the demographics, just the return of, uh, of risk premium to more meaningful positive levels want to um, be more positioned for steepening and steepening, you know, also benefits where if the economy does weaken here, you know, the front end will, you know, will rally. So it could work in both ways, a soft landing where we bring term premium back into the curve or a bit of a hard landing that, uh, you know, has the front end really, you know, really repriced. So I think that, you know, bias, um, you know, makes, makes sense to me here. You know, and, and finally, I think if we do get uh, that correction in the fourth quarter that I'm thinking, you know, I do think this is a period where you want to sort of de-risk a little bit in general. Um, you, know, my, you know, having short duration assets, you know, makes sense here. Money market funds yielding five and a quarter percent is an attractive real rate in an uncertain in environment. So... You know, I think overweighting, you know, the front end of the curve to me makes, you know, makes some sense. Terry Belton, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Will. That was Terry Belton, former head of global portfolio strategy for the chief investment office at J.P. Morgan. I think Terry brings up a really good point about the role that inflation will play in this next phase of the bond market. How the Fed's consistent ability to get inflation back to its target will stop yields from climbing as high as they did in the 70s and 80s. I also think it's important to point out how attractive fixed income opportunities are right now when compared to the decade before the pandemic, especially when it comes to real rates. The FOMC begins its pre-meeting silent period after today, so committee participants are unable to publicly comment on monetary policy until after the November 1st decision. Markets show a firm expectation the Fed will leave rates unchanged at that meeting, though the probability of an additional hike in December or January is still close to 50-50. There will be no summary of economic projections at this decision, so markets will be closely monitoring Chair Powell's press conference on November 1st for any clues regarding future policy. The advance release of third quarter GDP will be out next week on Thursday. The Atlanta Fed's GDP Now model estimates 5.4% annualized growth, three times the Fed's estimate for long-run potential. The next day, September PCE data should confirm the worrisome evidence of underlying inflation we saw in the September CPI. The following week, two days after the November 1st FOMC decision, the October employment report will give a sense if red-hot September job growth continued into the fourth quarter. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Comperl, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. 
Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.